up, what up, what up, Format listeners? If you can hear the excitement in my voice, it's because we have a great sports weekend and I get to talk college football, NFL, and the NBA this week. In college football, there's three huge games. Boomer Sooner and the Hook'em Horns get back together for the Red River Showdown. The Gators head down to the Bayou for a huge SEC clash with the Tigers. And the Fighting Irish welcome the Trojans to South Bend for a battle in the shadow of Touchdown Jesus. The NFL is amazing as usual, and I'll tell you why it's great. The NFC West is the best division in football, and Russell Wilson is a freaking magician. Tom Brady may be 42 in the past schedule is saw so far, but he's still winning throwing the ball to three guys from Southie. The NBA is potentially in hot water and lost a bunch of money last week. Baker Mayfield is bad right now, but not as bad as you might think. All that and more. Sit back, relax, and listen up to episode 39 of The Format. I'll keep the college football stuff short this week, or I'll try to. There's uh, still about three weeks left till the first college football playoff poll is released. And in the current polls, the coaches and Associated Press, the mighty, mighty SEC has four of the top seven in both. Here's my take. First, the committee seems obsessed with getting more than one SEC team into the playoff every season. It's only happened once, but it always seems like that's the goal if you watch the rankings for most of the seasons. Gotta keep the narrative going, right? Anyway, it does occur to me that by having multiple SEC teams ranked so high, if one or two loses to another high-ranked SEC team, then the committee can still keep them in play so they can hang on to the hope of getting more than one SEC team in. For instance, number 5 LSU hosts number 7 Florida this weekend in Death Valley, and that's going to be a great game, don't get me wrong. But unless there's an absolute blowout, the loser of this game won't drop very far at all, and that seems to be by design. But it's only halfway through the season, so we'll wait and see how it works itself out. More and more things are going to need to shake out, and that's going to happen over time. Anyway, three big-time games this weekend will definitely help that process along. Number 6, Oklahoma versus number 11, Texas, is the early one. And this should be Oklahoma and Jalen Hurts' first real test of the season. Most More than that, it should be the first real test of the new and improved Sooner defense under uh, new defensive coordinator Alex Grinch. Texas is going to be the best offense they've faced so far this season, so it should be a good way to kind of evaluate the level of improvement on that defense. And like I said, and I'll say it again, if Oklahoma can get into the 40s ranking-wise overall in total defense, they'll win the national championship because that offense is absolutely amazing. Now, the next big game is going to be number five LSU versus number seven Florida. And this one is going to be the exact opposite of the Oklahoma game. Let me explain that. 
for the longest time, defense has been the strength of LSU, but through their first five games this year, they're one of the most potent offenses in the country. Yes, I said that right. Through the first five games this year, LSU is one of the most potent offenses in the country. They're averaging more than 55 points per game. They're also number two in total offense and number two in passing offense. When in our lifetime did we think we were going to see that, right? For years, the only holdup to LSU being a great team was an inability to move the ball and score with regularity when they have it. It looks like that's finally changed, but we will get to find out for sure this weekend when the Gators visit, and that's going to be a huge game. The Gators are really good defensively, and uh, it should it should definitely be a slugfest. Now, I got LSU winning that one. I don't think they'll be able to blow them out, but if Florida wins that, that's going to be just a huge feather in their cap, a huge win. It's going to say a lot, you know, being on their third quarterback. And on top of that, it's going to say a lot, you know, going into in the next few weeks, the big showdown with Georgia in Jacksonville. The third big game for me is USC at Notre Dame. Now, this Notre Dame defense, they have been on a tear since the Georgia game. Right now, they're number 13 overall in total defense and number 19 against the pass. And that's a very solid improvement over recent years. Um, the passing defense is going to be key against the Trojans, as it always is. They always have fast, athletic receivers, namely Michael Pittman Jr., Tyler Vaughns, and Amon Ra St. Brown, who is coincidentally the younger brother of former Notre Dame receiver Equinemius St. Brown. So that's going to be just a little added extra, right? The fact that uh, his brother is Irish or his brother played for the Irish and now he plays for the Trojans. So that should be a good little extra bit of something there. Definitely look forward to to seeing that matchup. Now, like most teams on defense, if the Irish can get home with their front four and they do have two very potent rush ends in Khalid Kareem and Julian Aquara, if they can get home with four, that leaves a lot of options for how they're going to be able to play in the secondary. But if they get into a situation where they're not going to be able to get to the quarterback and maybe now they have to try to do some different things defensively, like blitz a little more. Clark Lee doesn't necessarily like to blitz a lot. And when you do have a really good front four, you have the benefit of not necessarily having to do that. But if that gets into a situation where they have to change what they do because they can't get pressure up front, well, then that's going to create definite advantage in uh, uh, for USC in terms of the passing game. Now, Notre Dame has zero room for error. Because as you know, they already have the loss against Georgia and without the benefit of being in a conference and having a conference uh, championship game to play in, I don't know if it's necessarily a benefit or, or not being in a conference, but in that particular instance, being able to say, okay, I'm a conference champion, that carries a little more weight. But regardless, Notre Dame has to win out if they have any hope of getting into the playoff again this year. And of course, they'll need some help from teams above them in terms of high ranking teams losing and dropping down uh, so that they can leapfrog them but uh they have to deal with this game in front of them this week and of course that's the big rivalry week uh Notre Dame USC and then should they get past that that's a nice little win going into the bye for the matchup in two weeks at night at Michigan in the big house so you know we've got some things to look forward to if you're an Irish fan and if you're Notre Dame but at the end of the day you got to win this game so to recap 
the three big games uh, this weekend that I am really looking forward to. Obviously, the early game, Oklahoma and Texas at uh, at the Texas State Fair. Uh, then you have um, the two night games. You have Florida going to Baton Rouge to take on LSU. And, of course, USC at Notre Dame. Honorable mention for a big game is the matchup between Alabama and Texas A&M. Now, A&M obviously has had some of the uh, best recruiting classes in the country over the last couple of years, and they came into the season with really high hopes. But unfortunately for them, they already have two losses, and they are clinging to a spot in the top 25 and number 24. A win over number one Alabama could do wonders to turn the season around if they can pull that off. Honestly, I don't see it, though. With the level that uh, Tua Tagovailoa is playing at and those receivers that he has, Waddle, Ruggs, and Jerry Judy, um, it's I don't see too many teams that are capable of stopping that team because, obviously, Bama can always defend. They can always run it. But now they have an explosive passing offense, which is an element we have not typically seen from Nick Saban coach teams, and that just makes them all the more dangerous. How good is the National Football League? I mean, really, it's such a different league from the NBA. Maybe not better or worse, but just different. And that's great in its own way. I think the level of competition in the NFL from an organizational standpoint is probably better than any other league. There's the hard salary cap, the constant reversal of uh, worst to first and first to worst in terms of the standings every year. Excluding the Patriots, right? Because they just dominate the division year in and year out. That's another story. I'll just briefly say it's not necessarily because the AFC East is so bad. It's more because the Patriots are so good that they've eliminated all stability and uh, patience in terms of the other management from the other teams in that division in terms of trying to develop a viable product. Everyone is always jumping around, trying to find a quarterback, trying to find the GM, trying to find the coach that can catch Brady and uh, Belichick instead of just building their program and trying to slowly but surely get to a point where they can win. You're not going to catch Brady and Belichick. Just do what you do. But anyway, I digress. Really, this game is just so incredible to watch and, and to be a fan of. There's so much suspense. The relative shortness of the regular season and the total and complete sense of urgency of the one-and-done format of the playoffs just make the NFL unmatched in sports. And unlike the NBA, where over half the league makes the playoffs, only 12 of 32 NFL teams can actually get a spot. The NFL just deserves one word, special, because that's what it is, special. Look at the NFC West. There's three teams that are capable of making the playoffs in that division alone. Um, obviously three teams from the same division won't make the playoffs, but they are capable of making it. The Los Angeles Rams were the NFC representative in the Super Bowl last season. Side note, unpopular opinion here, last year's Super Bowl was one of the most exciting Super Bowls I've ever seen. Watching that chess match between two of the best defensive minds in the history of the game really had me on edge waiting for the dam to break. Now, I know the casual fan who wants to see Big 12-type scoring every week doesn't agree with me, and that's okay. That's why I said it's an unpopular opinion. Anyway, back to the NFC West. The Seahawks are 4-1, and one, and Russell Wilson looks like a legitimate MVP candidate. Imagine if this guy had real elite offensive skill talent around him. Talk about making miracles. <laughs> 
Here's Russell Wilson's receiving core. Tyler Lockett, not a true number one receiver. DK Metcalf, physical freak, but just a rookie. Jerron Brown, who? And Will Disley. Not too many QBs not named Tom Brady could take that bunch and do what Russell Wilson is doing with them. Then, also in the division, you have the surprising 49ers. Kyle Shanahan has his thing going in San Francisco. Funny thing, in an era of throwing it all around the yard and backing up the Brinks truck for a franchise quarterback, which the Niners did for Garoppolo, the 49ers are winning with an old-school formula. Run heavy, work off the play action, and be physical defensively. Funny, I remember a guy named Jim Harbaugh doing the exact same thing with a lot of success for the 49ers, and they got rid of him. But I digress. The 49ers run the highest percentage of the time in the NFL. The way they play might not be sexy, but it's working. Also, the 49ers, from a few years stretch of being pretty bad, have really loaded up on first-round talent in the defensive front seven. They can get a lot of pressure without even blitzing, and that gives a lot of freedom for the secondary to play well and to make plays. In, in the front four, D. Ford, Solomon Thomas, Nick Bosa, and DeForest Buckner can really make it hard on exposing QBs. We saw that last Monday when they tore Baker Mayfield and the Browns apart. The NFC West is probably the best division in football again, and they will be a great watch all the way down to the wire. So I was thinking about this. Before the season, I picked the Patriots to win the AFC. Now, I know that seems like a lazy pick, but me, if you know anything about me, you know I am a proponent of history. And history tells me that over the last 20 years, the safest bet in sports is number one, the Patriots winning the AFC East, and after that, the Patriots going to the Super Bowl. There's never been such a sustained run of success in the 100-year history of the NFL. Regardless, they are decimated by injuries. If you look at the Patriots' depth chart, there's 11 injuries on offense alone right now. Brady's weapons are all banged up, but they're still 6-0. Now, obviously, they've played a pretty weak schedule up to this point, but they're doing what they're supposed to, and that's beating bad teams. The defense looks incredible, but again, they haven't really played anyone yet. From November 3rd on, the schedule gets tougher. They got some more difficult matchups. There's Baltimore, uh, Philly, Houston, and Kansas City. All these teams have the weaponry and the scheme to beat these guys. But I guess what it comes down to is, at the end of the day, players, of course, you have to have the talent. And players make a huge difference. But I don't know if I've ever seen a team that relies on coaching and preparation as great as Brady is to the extent that the Patriots do. Very rarely will you see Bill Belichick get out Fox, and that's why he wins the vast majority of the time. Now, I'm not one of those guys who believes that Belichick is more important than Brady in the equation because the fact of the matter is, without Brady, Belichick has never won, and that is a fact. It's assumption that Brady can't win without Belichick, but we've never been in a situation to see whether or not that can be the case. But we have seen Belichick never win as a head coach without Brady. So the fact is, we know that Brady is the straw that stirs the proverbial drink. And the evidence is there. It's pretty simple. Those four games are going to be a lot tougher. But regardless, the Pats always be who they're supposed to be. And what that does is build up a lot of equity for a loss or two against tough teams. And normally, it gets the Patriots to a record where they can have home field advantage throughout the playoffs along with a first-round bye. 
and that's just a beautiful setup for them. So they do what they're supposed to do, only have to play two games to get to the Super Bowl instead of three, and most likely those two games are going to be at Gillette Stadium. They get to the Super Bowl, and they get a chance to put number seven on Brady and Belichick's fingers and continue the most dominant run, I will say, arguably, in North American professional team sports history. Now, of course, some people might say you have the Celtics with their eight straight titles or the Bulls with six titles in in eight years, including two three-peats and all of that. But I will say that with the way the NFL is structured and designed and its parity, it is much harder to win a Super Bowl one, if not multiple in the NFL, than it is to win multiple championships in the NBA. And that's that's just a fact. Anyway, um, meanwhile, you could tell Brady is just frustrated with the situation, with the continual injuries and with not having enough weapons. But the fact is he's still going out there along with the rest of his team and still getting it done. They're still 6-0, finding ways to win. We can poo-poo the 6-0 all we want, say they haven't played anyone, and that's absolutely true. But the fact is they are doing what they're supposed to do, and there's probably not a better team in terms of focus and not letting down against uh, weaker opponents than the Patriots. Another side note. Situations like this are exactly why Brady is without question the greatest quarterback of all time. He doesn't have the weapons. He doesn't have a whole lot of help on his O-line. He's surrounded by injuries, but yet he's still going out there and getting the job done. And yes, he may not be playing at his prime. Obviously, he's beyond his peak physically. But at the end of the day, he still finds ways to win. It doesn't matter how bad he plays. He's one of those guys that always manages to make the big throw or lead the drive to get the win. Show me another QB who's at this level of success with so few elite weapons throughout a career. You can't. Matter of fact, show me another QB who's had this level of success throughout a career. You can't. Show me another QB who has the wins, who combines that with the statistical production you can't bottom line all these things together make tom brady the greatest who ever played um i'll just keep this brief the excuse for years has been that if you give aaron Rodgers a defense then you'll see how great he is and yes he's been historically great not trying to denigrate that throughout his career he's been one of the best who's ever done it but this nonsense about him being the best quarterback of all time He's the best thrower of the football we've ever seen. Blah, 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 blah. Can we lay it to rest now? Can we we stop it? I will give him this. It is his first year in a new system. But him being the veteran that he is, and some people argue that he's the greatest quarterback they've ever seen, he should be able to pick up the system very quickly. And now he has that much improved defense that everyone's been calling for him to get. So what now is the excuse for his numbers being down now i will say this they're winning games they're four and one and that's an extremely important thing but i want to hear all the aaron Rodgers apologists explain to me why now that he has pretty much everything he needs he's got a running game he's got a defense why are his numbers down for all the superlatives i've been hearing heaped upon him i'll just say i don't see it but regardless his team is four and one And that's what's most important. Just ask Tom Brady.
biggest story this week from the NBA is obviously the damaged relationship between the NBA and its biggest foreign market, China. The whole thing uh, kind of started when Houston Rockets GM Daryl Morey tweeted his feelings on the current political strife in China. Quote, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, unquote. Uh, he immediately deleted the tweet, but we know nothing dies on the Internet. And obviously, this caused a huge uproar in China, which has multiple NBA sponsors, hosts lots of games, and has huge buying power of NBA merchandise, as well as a gigantic TV audience. Of course, with China being such a huge partner of the NBA and uh, consumer of uh, NBA media, that tweet ruffled a lot of feathers over there. Chinese companies started pulling sponsorships. And the CBA Chinese Basketball Association announced that suspending all cooperation with the Rockets. Bottom line, the NBA National Basketball Association is a league that, especially recently, has been really known for its willingness to speak on and attempt to tackle important social justice issues. And it's being called to the carpet for its unwillingness to stand up in the face of this particular issue with China. I can understand that mindset, but... We also got to be real here and we also got to see both sides. And that's one thing about me, whether I agree with something or not, I try to look at it from both sides, if for no other reason than to poke holes in the argument of the other side. But in all seriousness, you got to look at things from both sides and be willing to listen. And this is one of those situations. Yes, the NBA is being hypocritical in this. Some of its most outspoken players and coaches on these types of issues on the domestic front have been noticeably quiet uh, regarding this. And something tells me the NBA probably put out a not so unofficial gag order on the topic. At the end of the day, though, as idealistic as we'd like to be on the NBA, the fact is it's still a say it with me, people business. The NBA is still a uh, one more time business what's the most important thing in a business the bottom line when the bottom line starts getting affected then the necessary adjustments simply have to be made and you know if we're honest with ourselves we understand that china is no little fish without question it's the largest external consumer of the nba product and losing that business relationship would be a huge financial blow possibly even disastrous to the nba for those who want to act righteous, I get it. Pointing out the NBA's hypocrisy on the matter is one thing, but let's be real here. If this was your league and that money at stake was your money, what would you do? It's pretty much a no-brainer. Meanwhile, the preseason games are off and running and the Pelicans look new and exciting and we knew they would just to make up the, of the team. They're young, athletic, they can run, they can jump, they can be, you know, fast. Um... So we're getting to see a lot of kind of what we thought we were going to see, especially in terms of Lonzo Ball, a guy whose whole game has been known to be predicated in terms of playing fast, getting a ball out in the open floor, uh, making lead passes and those type of exciting plays. You got Brandon Ingram, who has shown a lot of talent, but also has shown a lot of injuries. And of course, you got the number one uh, pick in the draft this year, Zion Williamson. So the Pelicans do look young. They look exciting. And guess what? Zion Williamson can dunk. Who knew? <laughs> yeah, I know it's only preseason, but isn't preseason where you get in game reps to work on things? So why not take this time to work on, I don't know, a jump shot or a post game? 
against live defenders who aren't on your team. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But it's the preseason and won't cost your team in the wins-losses columns. Makes no sense to me instead of doing what we already know you're great at. Now, with that said, you know, when I was working on this pod and getting it kind of scripted out, getting my thoughts together, that's definitely how I felt about it. And uh, I think it was last night I actually saw Zion, you know, catch a pass on a kick out and knock down a three-pointer, which was a good sign. But at the end of the day, we still need to see him doing more in terms of other aspects of his game. So, To his credit, I did see him take a three and knock it down, but there's still a whole lot of layups. There's still a whole lot of dunking. And so, you know, it would be good for him to take this time against live defenders on other teams to continue to work on and develop other aspects of his game. So we'll see if that comes along. If you look at it, uh, Ben Simmons, he seems to get that idea because apparently he spent a whole lot of time in the offseason working on his jump shot which, by the way, nearly broke the internet when he hit an in-game three-pointer. I think that may have been the first time in his career that he's ever done that. Now, it's only preseason, but hopefully for him and for Philly, that's a precursor of things to come. Um, But it looked good. You know, he stepped right into it, pulled up, and and stroked that thing. So, again, it was only the preseason, but at least he showed us something we've never seen from him before. And he's using the preseason to, would you look at that, work on new things. Even James Harden is using the preseason to work on new things. Yeah, he's working on his one-legged traveling, I mean, floating (laughs) three-pointer. The Lakers are starting to work out some kinks, too, with LeBron and Anthony Davis. And clearly the plan for them is to be working to pick and roll to perfection in whatever option they can get it. Now, the NBA is already a league heavy on the pick and roll in whatever variation works best against the opposition and whatever variation works best with the personnel that you have on your particular team. So most of these teams in the league are using some variation of the pick-and-roll offense, and you know LeBron James and Anthony Davis are going to be heavy on that. You know, So having two of the top players in the league theoretically puts the Lakers in position to use the pick-and-roll a whole lot. Now me personally, I think it may not work so well against teams that have length and really good defenders on the perimeter, because those type of players give LeBron all types of trouble. See Kawhi Leonard, see Paul George, see even uh, Pat Beverly, you know, uh, see Giannis. He can't get going. And if you're in a position where the team has multiple of those type of players, and I think I broke this down on another episode where he's going to call for the switch and another defender comes that he can't deal with, that causes more problems. So, We'll see. Um, definitely uh, waiting waiting to see that. And especially with them saying that LeBron is going to be running more point and uh, having his hands on the ball even more. And I mean, let's be real here. He's been the primary ball handler for his entire career. But those type of players are going to give him problems. And it's going to be very interesting to see. I think the biggest advantage he may have is in a lot of cases at the point guard position, he will be tall enough to be able to see with ease over that defender so theoretically he could pass out of it but we'll see I gave you fair warning beware I gave you fair warning beware Before we get up out of here you know what time it is it's time for the Bruce So the Cleveland Browns are two and three on the season and Baker Mayfield is regressing and struggling. 
and it looks like he's playing some of the worst football of his young career. Part of that is a tougher schedule to start the season, but I think we need to look deeper into it because he may not be struggling quite as badly as we think or as we're being told. Now, if you look at it, the Cleveland Browns offensive line is terrible. They look like a sieve out there. They're not giving Baker much time at all to be able to process things, and the pass rush is really getting to him. Again, they've played really good teams so far, but let's take a look at this. Last season, he was sacked 25 times in 14 games. That's an average of 1.78 sacks per game that the Cleveland Browns gave up. He was blitzed 169 times, and that's an average of 12 times per game. Okay. Now, this season, Baker Mayfield has been sacked 16 times in five games. That's an average of 3.1 per game. So, you know, uh, close to one and a half times more often he's being sacked this year. He's been blitzed 47 times in five games. That's 9.4 per game. So the pressure is coming and the sacks are getting home, right? And the thing is, those numbers right there show that this regression everyone's talking about is not quite the case, even though his completion percentage is down early in the season than it is uh, than it was last year. And you know, one of the things that we've always touted about Baker Mayfield is his accuracy, right? But there seems to be just more to it than that. The O-line play has been terrible. Like I said, he isn't being protected. Opposing defenses are attacking him at a much higher rate. Now, his sack rate is almost doubled from 4.9% of his pass attempts last season to 9% this year. Now, part of that is Baker Mayfield possibly holding on to the ball uh, longer this season than he was last season. I wasn't exactly able to find the numbers on that, but just by eyeballing it, you can see that with all these weapons he has, he's trying to make big plays downfield instead of doing more, taking what the defense gives you. I get that, but regardless, the, the O-line is now protecting him. Um, according to Pro Football Reference, even though Baker looks worse, his bad throw percentage is actually almost identical to last season. Last season, his bad throw percentage was 16.7% of his pass attempts, and this year it's 16.8. So really, he's not making any more bad throws this year than he did last year. Ideally, from a rookie to a second year, more time in the system, more time to study the film, you would think that that percentage would go down instead of rising, even if it's slightly. But there's also a bunch of new uh, wrinkles in play, and there's a bunch of new personnel. And again, the offensive line is terrible. The Browns also, and this is a big one for me, have a rookie head coach. Last season was his first stint as an NFL coordinator before becoming interim head coach, which led to his you know, current position as full-time head coach. So Freddie Kitchens may know offense, but right now he doesn't know how to be a head coach. And that's not a knock on him. That, like everything else, is something that comes with time and experience. What I'm getting at is that, yeah, Baker Mayfield is not playing well this season. He has a lot of talent. He has a lot of room to grow. He has a lot of weapons. But there's also a lot of other factors contributing to the fact that he's not playing as well as he could. Look deeper beneath the surface on all this. Baker Mayfield is atypical for a franchise quarterback. I know a lot of people don't like how he acts or a lot of the things that he says, and that's okay. That's cool. But what's happening right now is what we call belief perseverance. 
because he doesn't necessarily look and act like your typical franchise NFL quarterback, a lot of people may kind of uh, have an old school mindset. I want my franchise quarterback to act this way. I want him to say these things. And because Baker doesn't fit that mold, uh, a lot of people have a negative view towards him. And now the fact that even though he's got a ton of weapons, he isn't necessarily playing up to what was predicted by a lot of people so far um, for the Cleveland Browns. Um, he's not playing up to that. Well, then that's just, you know, their opportunity to pick low hanging fruit. Right. You also got to look at it. Odell Beckham Jr. is a new addition to the team. He's a big time weapon and they are looking for ways to get him the football. So now maybe more often than not, they're forcing ways to try to get him the football. And that's disrupting the continuity of the offense. It's also a situation where you've got a guy like a Nick Chubb, who if you just would commit to consistently running the football, could make Baker's job a lot easier in terms of play action. He was really good off the play action last year. But when you've got so many weapons in the passing game, you don't necessarily want to, as an offensive coordinator, as a head coach, maybe you may not want to directly commit to pounding the football because it isn't sexy, right? It doesn't necessarily score a whole lot of points, but it makes the game so much easier and makes it easier for your quarterback and easier to win. And also something else we got to look at halfway through the season, Kareem Hunt's going to come back. That's another outstanding running back who can run it and another very viable receiving threat out of the backfield. So that's another weapon Baker has to try and uh, uh, integrate into the passing game. So all these things make it tougher for him, not necessarily making excuses, but applying what we call context to all of this that we hear about Baker regressing and how bad he is and so on and so forth. Again, I'm not trying to say that he's Tom Brady or Pat Mahomes or Deshaun Watson and that he's having some fantastic season thus far. By any metric, by any measure, he isn't. But we need to look deeper beneath the surface to get a better idea of what's going on there. And now what's happening is that his poor play is being pointed to and a lot of people are doing it without context. So that's all I got for the Bruce Breakdown this week. And that's it for this episode of The Format. For my returning listeners, as always, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. We're over 900 total listens now. So we're getting real close to the 1,000 listen benchmark. And, and that's just awesome. Uh, wasn't sure we would get this far. Or we would have this kind of success. So uh, I appreciate you guys staying with me. Please continue to tune in. Continue to share the podcast. If you know people, like I say every week, you know people who love sports talk, uh, friends, family, co-workers, acquaintances, classmates, whoever, share the pod with them. Let's get it out to as many people and get it in as many ears as possible. Um, if you're a new listener, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Hope you liked what you heard and I hope you come back uh, on the social media side. You can definitely catch me on Twitter. I, I tweet a fair amount um, at Bruce F.A. Hope. That's at Bruce F.A. Hope. Uh, you can catch me on Instagram at the format podcast at the format podcast. You can definitely give me a shout. You can let me know what you think, where I was right, where I was wrong. Uh, if you want to, you know, discuss something with me, you want to shoot the breeze. You want to suggest uh, topics for upcoming shows. You can do all of that. I appreciate all the feedback. Um, definitely love to engage with listeners or whoever. Uh, also, if you're listening on a uh, Google or Apple platform, or whatever platform you can. If you're able to rate and review, please rate and review, rate and review, rate and review. It's going to help a lot. Uh, really would appreciate that. Um, and uh, yeah, 
I guess that's it. So just to close it out, thanks again, and I'm out. Peace. You gotta go, you gotta, gotta.